0: Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. In 1973, 26-year-old director Steven Spielberg was hired to make a movie based on Peter Blinchley's novel about shark attacks called Jaws. The movie was so scary that even today, millions of Americans panic when they get news that a shark might be present in their beach area. A persistent shark phobia keeps some people away from the beach, but an article in Foreign Policy Magazine claims that on average, less than one American per year dies from a shark attack. So just in case you really need something else to worry about, here's a list of some items more likely to cause your death while living in the United States. Trampolines and roller coasters both account for about one death per year. Tipping vending machines to try and get that free Snickers bar account for two deaths per year. Riding lawnmowers take five lives per year. Fireworks cause six deaths per year. Although technically these deaths were caused more by careless and impatient people who peered into the PVC piping because the fireworks didn't seem to be igniting. You know the whole hold my beer and watch this phenomena. And finally, getting crushed by a television or furniture causes an average of 26 deaths every year in the United States. When I read that last one about the TV and furniture, I thought, I wonder how many cholesterol deaths happen while sitting on a couch eating a bag of Doritos. All that to say, we live in a very dangerous world where none of us are truly completely safe. So it's a good thing that this morning Jesus is going to give us this promise. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Look at verse 25 with me. These things I have spoken to you in figures of speech. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. On that day you will ask in my name, and I am not saying to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I have come forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world again. I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, see, now you are speaking plainly and not using any figure of speech. Basically, we're going to cover three things this morning. First, there is no peace in this world without truth. That's verse 33. Verse 25 says, these things I have spoken. Well, what things? All the things contained in chapters 13, 14, 15, 15. And 16. So Jesus is telling them, I tell you all these things about me, all these absolute truths about God and Christ and heaven and hell. Without these truths, you will not have peace as there is no peace without truth. Secondly, the Bible teaches us also that it's not truth in general or just any kind of truth, but it's truth about Christ that brings peace. We are told in verse 27, the reason that God loves you and the reason that you have peace and the reason he is with you is because you believe the things that I've told you about me, that I have come from the Father. Thirdly, the Bible teaches it's not a general intellectual assent about the truth of Christ, but it is an act of daring to trust and live on that truth that will bring us peace. So to sum up, there is no peace without truth. There is no truth, or no peace without truth about Christ. And there is no peace without daring to live on that truth and trust in Christ. Now, maybe somebody is out there thinking, "Wait a second, am I in a time warp or something?" Modern people can't believe in truth. Sophisticated people can't believe anybody can be certain or know anything truly about God and heaven and hell. An absolute truth, really. The thing is that statement involves circular reasoning because that statement, there is no absolute truth is in itself saying, I'm absolutely sure that there is no truth. Not only that, they may say, we now understand that all perspectives are historically conditioned and culturally conditioned too. Therefore, as the argument goes, there's really no way to know truth. And certainly if you do have private opinions about it, you must never impose that on anyone else. The clarion call of our uber-tolerant culture is you must never impose your beliefs on anybody else. Although when they say that, they are doing that exact same thing right at that moment. They are imposing their beliefs upon you. Now, that's a very, very common position today. But I'd like to show you this morning that it is untenable. And not only that, it is even illogical, as there is no such thing as peace or even living in this world without truth. Jesus Christ comes and says, there is no way for you to navigate through life unless you have made some decisions about the big religious questions, such as, what am I living for? Is this all that there is? Where did I come from? Where am I going? You see, every human is faced with three big questions, and they have to be dealt with in some way. They are about origin, morality, and destiny. Unpacked is the questions, where did I come from? "Origin." How do I live now that I am alive? Morality. And where, if anywhere, do I go when I die? Destiny. And there is a degree of faith you have to exercise with each of those three questions. Even if you are a devout atheist, you still have faith that your worldview is the only one that is correct. But without Christ... The consequence of it all is a bleak world of hopelessness and despair. People yearn for the very significance, meaning, and purpose in their lives that their worldview cannot offer them. And as a result, they resort to irrational searching, desperately for some kind of experience, feeling, intuition, or idea to believe in and to live for that can give them hope and meaning in their lives. But as the Bible says, all they did succeed in doing is chewing out for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. The worldly pleasures they tirelessly pursue can never satisfy them because real hope, the experience of genuine love, and a true sense of purpose in life come only through believing in the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Or as the great hymn states, Fading are the world's vain pleasures, all their boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. Not only that, despite whatever pessimism or skepticism they may have about ultimate truth, all people exercise a great measure of human faith in even the most mundane matters Of human life. For instance, people trust that the food that they eat, the water that they drink, and the medicine that they take are all safe. That the planes that they board will not crash during the flight or land in the wrong city. And that the houses that they live in will not suddenly collapse around them. If you think about it, every time you drive your car, you are trusting that the person coming the other way isn't going to smash right into you on a higher level, people begin in love, themselves, money, or some other sort of nebulous higher power. Oliver Wendell Holmes' vague statement, it's faith in something and enthusiasm for something that makes life worth living. <laughs> that is the flimsy philosophy of many, if not most, in this culture. Yet Christianity gives you a set of answers that have been time-tested for centuries by millions and millions of people who found that when they embraced it and gave their lives to it, it gave them something that really fit with reality, with what was around them. The problem is today, many people will say, you know Christianity, the truths and teachings Jesus taught are great. Things like, Love your neighbor, the golden rule, and caring for the poor, all that jazz about honesty and integrity, that's all great stuff. If the whole world were living it, it would be a much better world. So I'm all for it. What hangs me up is all these ancient, strange doctrines about Christ, such as the incarnation which says that he's God come to the earth. That's just too fantastic. Or the doctrine of the atonement that says he had to shed his blood for us. I mean, come on. The idea of having to appease an angry God with blood sacrifice, that's just too primitive. And especially this issue. Since he's God and the Savior, he's the exclusive Savior. So that means that all the other religions have to be wrong. I can't handle that. I can't handle the primitiveness and the fantastic nature of and the exclusivity of all these old doctrines about Christ. Can we just agree on his teachings? Can we just agree on the truths from Christ instead of the truths about Christ and the doctrines about Christ? Can we just all sit by the campfire, eat some mores, sing kumbaya, and just all of us get together on that? Now, that position does sound plausible at first until you realize what you're asking is that Christianity tears its own heart out and throws it away. So you can't separate who Christ is from his teachings. They are one and the same. How do you even know what human beings really are unless you decide whether or not God has come to earth and taken the form of Of a human being. Don't you see that everything else turns on that? Don't you see that all these other Christian views will make no sense unless we figure out whether or not Jesus is who he said that he was? But here's what I want us to understand if we are wrong about Jesus, we're going to be wrong everywhere. If we are wrong about Jesus, the ramifications of that will go far beyond politics and economics, and it will follow you into the next world and shape your eternal destiny forever. Well, you say, I don't believe all that. Fair enough. But if you are wrong, don't you see how great the ramifications are? Now, in verse 28, Jesus Christ actually gives us a compendium about what truth about him really is. It's all there in verse 28. There are four great doctrines. Everything he has taught about himself through this whole book up to this point, we can find right there in verse 28. He says, I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. Jesus says, I came from the Father. That's the doctrine of his pre existence and his deity, his divinity. He existed before he was born. Jesus then says, I have entered the world. That's the doctrine of the incarnation. He became visible. He became physical. He became a human being. He then said, I'm leaving the world. That's the doctrine of his death. that He's about to voluntarily lay down his life. And finally, I'm going back to the Father. That's the doctrine of his heavenly intercession. He is going to sit at the right hand of God and there intercede for us and be our representative. And did you know that Jesus is doing that very thing this morning? I doubt any of us truly appreciates what it means for Jesus to intercede to the Father on our behalf. Now back in the Old Testament days, sometimes when two armies would come together getting ready to have a big battle, Instead of doing that, sometimes they would just choose one representative. There was a technical term called the archagos, which means a champion. What would happen was each army would put forth their best fighter, and that fighter would represent the entire army. Think of the story of David and Goliath here. Now, if he won, the army won, and the entire land was theirs. They had to pay tribute and everything. However, if your representative lost, your champion lost, then you were put into slavery. The point is, you look like your advocate in court. You look like your advocate on the battlefield. Whatever he accomplishes accrues to you. Now, speaking of Jesus, the Bible says he is able to save to the uttermost those who have come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. I love that. To the uttermost. Or we could say from the uttermost to the guttermost. No one is excluded if they will but repent and come to him. So what that means is when you receive Christ as Savior, all the things that he has done, the coming and going and the dying, the incarnation, everything is done, you see, for you. He represents you. Your case is his case. Your face is his face before God the Father. Once when Donald Gray Barnhouse was talking with some students about the atonement, he used the illustration of a judge who saw his son come before him accused of reckless driving. Now the charge was clearly proven. The judge fined the young man the full amount permitted under the law. Then the judge adjourned the court, sat down from the bench, and paid his son's fine. Now, a girl who had been listening very closely to this illustration objected, wait a minute, God cannot come down off the bench. Barnhouse's answer was, you have just given me one of the best illustrations of the incarnation that I will ever have. For Jesus Christ was no more or less than God Almighty, yet he came down from off the bench to pay the fine which he has imposed upon us. Verse 30, please. Now we know that you know all things, and you have no need for anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came forth from God. Jesus replied to them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming, has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. After Jesus gave his teaching about childbearing, prayer, and joy, the disciples thought, Okay, now we got it. But the implication is they really didn't. Their claim was honest, but it was really quite pretentious. They claimed to believe. They said that they were sure of their belief, but they were actually weak in their commitment. Thus, instead of being impressed with his disciples' faith, Jesus goes on to foretell their confusion and scattering at the time of the crucifixion. The whole exchange should be a lesson for us Christians, for we are often quite confident in our faith, and yet many of us are not as strong as we imagine ourselves to be. We say, now I believe, now I am sure, but in just a short while we can find ourselves doubting the very thing we have just affirmed. Everyone has had such experiences. And it is in these that will help us to understand the profession of the disciples and their feelings as Jesus gently revealed what the future had in store for them. They were so sure of their faith. But in a short while, in fact, within just a few hours, their faith would be completely gone. I am so glad that the Lord accepts weak, stammering, and even ignorant faith. If he did not, what would become of us? Who could be saved? Our strength is not in our faith, but in him who is the object of our faith. Think about this. It is far safer walking across a frozen pond to have little faith walking on thick ice than it is to have great faith walking on thin ice. It is the object of our faith that is the most important thing. In verse 30, they said, We believe you've come from God, and that is the issue that every human has to decide upon. Is Jesus who he said he was? And that is the very Son of God. Jesus claimed to be God and to have come forth from God. Is it true? Or was it false and therefore devilish teaching Alexander McLaren saw the issue clearly over a generation ago and expressed it this way he said the meekest lowliest and most sane and wise religious teachers made deliberately over and over again this claim which is either absolutely true and lists him into the region of a deity or or is else fatal to his pretensions to be either meek or modest or wise or sane or a religious teacher to whom it is worth our while to listen. This is what I want us to get this morning. It is possible to have faith, understanding, and assurance, and yet still fail the Lord. Unless we practice that faith, apply that understanding, and rest on that assurance... We will fail when the time of testing comes. That's what happened to the disciples. And Jesus warned them that it was going to happen. So the Lord asked now a bigger question. Do you now believe? This is a question that we all must face. Do we really believe what Jesus has said? This is a key question in relation to his joy-transforming process in our lives. Do we really believe? He even says to us today, do you believe? Then cheer up. Why? It's a fact that I have overcome the world. Verse 33, please. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Jesus first off tells his disciples, In this world you are going to undergo a certain degree of tribulation, but you can still have supernatural peace if you will abide in me. Do we ever have trials, troubles, and tribulations? Now, I'm not talking about the self-inflicted ones. It's possible to be persecuted because you're an idiot. Being a jerk for Jesus doesn't count as tribulation. So let's just be upfront with one another. It's not only possible, but Jesus says it is inevitable that we are going to undergo a certain amount of trials and tribulations. Let's just call it what it is. As long as we reside in in these tents of flesh, we are going to experience some degree of pain. That's just life. Someone asked Roger Staubach, former quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys, about football injuries. How do you keep on keeping on when you play professional football? Now, Roger said something important. He said, if you're not playing hurt, you're not playing football. I think it's exactly the same thing in the Christian faith. If you're not to some degree living hurt, you're probably not completely living the Christian faith. But what are Jesus' next words? Take courage. Be of good cheer. Now, those words, take courage, are literally just one Greek word, which means to dare. What Jesus is saying is pretty astonishing. He says... Dare to believe that I have overcome the world. Dare to trust me. Dare to live as if all these things I've told you are really true. How does that work? Let me just show you two ways. First of all, it means dare to live an obedient life. Now, what does it mean to dare to live an obedient life? It means to dare to believe that live as if God is really God. For instance, the Bible says we are to be absolutely honest. And yet a lot of people say, yeah, but you see, there's a certain amount of dishonesty which is intrinsic to my job field, and I don't know what to do about that. Dare to live obedient means to dare to live as if the one who tells you these things are God. And if that is so, if he is God then the only impractical thing to do would be to disobey him. Now, if he's not God, then the only practical thing to do is to figure out whatever looks practical to you. Do we see? Dare to live obedient means to dare by living as if he is really from the Father. Live as if he is really God Almighty. Dare to live that way. Now, maybe some of you, because your life isn't going the way you want to are mad, because you say, he can't be loving me. If he really loved me, why is this happening to me? Now, the reason that you're discouraged is you're refusing to live as though he really loves you. So dare to live as if you are loved. Take that seriously when the battle comes. Take that seriously like these disciples when you're just now getting ready to be scattered. Take seriously all these things. We believe at last, we say, but are we really daring to live as though those things are true? At the end of his life, Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished. So his life and death must have been a success. But by human standards, His ministry at that point would have been judged a dismal failure. And yet, despite that, Jesus says, I've overcome the world. Now, think about that. Those words were spoken within the shadow of Golgotha at the very foot of the cross. They were spoken on the verge of what surely seemed to everyone like a defeat. But they were true then. And if they were true then, it is even more abundantly demonstrated that they are true now. Do we believe them? Is Christ really the victor? If we do, and he is, then we can stand with him in his victory. Possess that peace that he dispenses, and in our turn also overcome the world. Does the world deride Christ's gospel today? Yes, it does. And so much worse for the world. Do circumstances press us down? He has overcome circumstances. Let us stand with him then. He is the king. He is God over all, whose name is blessed forever. Jesus has overcome the world, and because of that, we too can be overcomers. You see, every believer is either overcome or an overcomer. First John 5, 4 says, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. You see, the world wants to overcome us. This is why Satan uses the world to persecute and pressure all the believers. The world wants us to conform, and it does not want us to be different. Nevertheless, when we yield ourselves to Christ and trust him, he enables us to to be overcomers Jesus gives us that peace but the gift of peace is appropriated only by those who depend upon him trust him and remain in him in their living of the Christian life Jesus you think his disciples is at a position to lay claim to I have overcome he says and you are in me so even if you do scatter And even if you do stumble, even if you do fail, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I lived a life in which the world did not seduce me in which Satan could not conquer me and which sin never tainted me. I have overcome, and you are in me. Therefore, you will overcome as well. Back to our earlier illustration, with Goliath towering over him, David goes to the brook and grabs five smooth stones. He slings one stone into the air, and Goliath is down for the count. And because Goliath was defeated, what happened? All the Philistines fled. And the men of Israel, who had previously been reluctant to take on the giant, they now all share in that victory won by a shepherd boy singularly. So too. Our champion, the good shepherd, the son of David, Jesus Christ took on the Goliath of our sin and failures, of Satan and the world system, and he beat all of them. All we have to do now is just enjoy that victory. That means the Christian race is the only race in the world that begins at the finish line. We don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. The battle's already won. Jesus has already overcome. No wonder, he says, be of good cheer. As we finish up this morning, in a leadership article, John Ortberg argues that sometimes it's the stressful and painful situations that enable us to grow the most. Ortberg creates the following scenario. He says, imagine you're handed a script of your newborn child's entire life. Better yet, You're given an eraser and five minutes to edit out whatever you want. You read she'll have a learning disability in grade school. Reading which comes easy for some kids will be laborious for her. In high school she will meet a great circle of friends but then one of those friends will die of cancer. After high school she'll go to her preferred college but while there she will lose a leg in a car accident. Following that she'll go through a difficult depression. A few years later, she'll get a great job, but then lose it in an economic downturn. She'll get married, but then have to go through the grief of a separation. With this script of your child's light and five minutes to edit it, what things would you erase? Wouldn't you want to take out all the stuff that caused her pain? But if you could erase every failure, disappointment, and period of suffering would that really be a good idea? Would that cause them to become the best version of themselves? He then asked, Is it possible that we actually need adversity and setbacks and maybe even crises and trauma to reach the fullest potential of development and growth that God wants for us? Now, Orborg contends that God doesn't always erase all our stress and pain. Instead, God uses those failures, those disappointments, and those periods of suffering to help us grow and to be a blessing to others. He writes, God isn't at work producing the circumstances I want. God is at work in producing in bad circumstances to produce the me that he wants. So no matter what we are going through this morning, we are faced with, with the question that was asked at the beginning of the sermon, do we now truly believe? Do we believe that Jesus is who he said that he is? And if he is, do we believe that not only does he always have our best interest, but assures us that because of him, we can overcome the world? I pray we not only believe that, but more importantly, have embraced that. And if you have any questions about any of these things, please see me after service. Let us pray. Lord, once you asked a man what he had to do to do the works of God, you told him to believe on the one the Father had sent. We can believe a lot of wrong things in this life and still be okay. But you are the one thing that we must get right for our salvation hangs upon that belief so today Lord Jesus reveal yourself to us and draw us to yourself give us saving faith if we don't have it or sanctification or encouragement or whatever we truly need for you we ask this in your name you are our champion and we willingly bow our knees before you amen